classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Thursday, and that means I'm reading something offbeat. Sundays are for classics, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. I said last episode that tonight I'd be exploring why we're so attracted to things that spook us. I don't mean actual frightening situations or awful horrors. I mean spooky stories. From my layman's Google researching, it seems that psychologically it does us a lot of good to get our adrenaline going and our dopamine up watching a scary movie or reading an upsetting horror book because we know deep down that we are safe. Whether we're at the cinema eating our popcorn or sitting curled up in a comfy chair reading a book. We won't actually be possessed by demons, or chased by clowns, or mauled by headless horsemen. There's a kind of physiological release that comes from being scared by a spooky story. The Romans used to have a feast called Lemuria, each May, where they scattered uncooked black beans over their shoulders, to exorcise malevolent spirits and ghosts. Ovid, who was writing at the time of the first emperor, Augustus, he said that the rituals started in Romulus's time, right at the founding of Rome, as a way of appeasing his murdered brother Remus, who he, Romulus, murdered. It's really no wonder he felt the need of some exorcism, and I guess a bunch of black beans is a cheap price to pay for fratricide. Exorcising a spectre was what Washington Irving was thinking about when he wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, about that terrible headless horseman and the superstitious Connecticut teacher Ichabod Crane. He was exploring a spooky story in the written form But I'm not reading the legend tonight. In fact, I'm not reading anything by Washington Irving. I'm reading a letter by Benjamin Franklin. And it isn't spooky either. What gives? Well, I read a charming Washington Irving essay about the English figure of John Bull in an old book of American essays. And there, lurking in the table of contents, I came across a letter by Benjamin Franklin that is so perfect and utterly charming, I felt it was worthy of gazumping any spooky read tonight. So apologies for the whiplash on topics, but I've called this episode Pinch Those Pennies, and let's let old Ben tell you why. Let's begin. A letter from Benjamin Franklin to his friend Madame Brillon. I received my dear friends two letters, one for Wednesday and one for Saturday. This is again Wednesday. I do not deserve one for today, because I have not answered the former. But, indolent as I am, and averse to writing, the fear of having no more of your pleasing epistles, if I do not contribute to the correspondence, obliges me to take up my pen. And, as Mr. B has kindly sent me word that he sets out tomorrow to see you, Instead of spending this Wednesday evening, as I have done its namesakes, in your delightful company, I sit down to spend it 
in thinking of you, in writing to you, and in reading over and over again your letters. I am charmed by your description of paradise, and with your plan of living there, and I approve much of your conclusion that in the meantime we should draw all the good we can from this world. In my opinion, we might all draw more good from it than we do, and suffer less evil, if we would take care not to give too much for whistles. For to me it seems that most of the unhappy people we meet with are become so by neglect of that caution. You ask what I mean? You love stories and will excuse my telling one of myself. When I was a child of seven years old, my friends on a holiday filled my pocket with coppers. I went directly to a shop where they sold toys for children and being charmed with the sound of a whistle that I met, by the way, in the hands of another boy, I voluntarily offered and gave all my money for one. I then came home and went whistling all over the house, much pleased with my whistle, but disturbing all the family. My brothers and sisters and cousins, understanding the bargain I had made, told me I had given four times as much for it as it was worth. Put me in mind what good things I might have bought with the rest of the money, and laughed at me so much for my folly that I cried with vexation, and the reflection gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure. This, however, was afterwards of use to me, the impression continuing on my mind, so that often when I was tempted to buy some unnecessary thing, I said to myself, Don't give too much for the whistle. And I saved my money. As I grew up, came into the world, and observed the actions of men, I thought I met with many, very many, who gave too much for the whistle. When I saw one too ambitious of court favour, sacrificing his time in attendance on morning meetings, his repose, his liberty, his virtue, and perhaps his friends to attain it, I have said to myself, this man gives too much for the whistle. When I saw another fond of popularity, constantly employing himself in political bustles, neglecting his own affairs and ruining them by that neglect, he pays indeed, said I, too much for his whistle. If I knew a miser who gave up every kind of comfortable living, all the pleasure of doing good to others, all the esteem of his fellow citizens, and the joys of benevolent friendship, for the sake of accumulating wealth. Poor man, said I, you pay too much for your whistle. When I met with a man of pleasure, sacrificing every laudable improvement of the mind, or of his fortune, to mere corporeal sensations, and ruining his health in their pursuit, mistaken man, said I, You are providing pain for yourself. Instead of pleasure, you give too much for your whistle. If I see one fond of appearance, or fine clothes, fine houses, fine furniture, fine equipages, all above his fortune, for which he contracts debts and ends his career in a prison, alas, say I, he has paid dear, very dear, for his whistle. When I see a beautiful, sweet-tempered girl, 
married to an ill-natured brute of a husband. What a pity, say I, that she should pay so much for a whistle. In short, I conceive that great part of the miseries of mankind are brought upon them by the false estimates they have made of the value of things, and by their giving too much for their whistles. Yet I ought to have charity for these unhappy people, when I consider that, with all this wisdom of which I am boasting, there are certain things in the world so tempting, for example, the apples of King John, which happily are not to be bought. For if they were put to sale by auction, I might very easily be led to ruin myself in the purchase, and find that I had once more given too much for the whistle. Adieu, my dear friend, and believe me ever yours very sincerely, and with unalterable affection, Ben Franklin. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Isn't that charming? And if you're wondering what the apples of King John might be, I think it was a type of apple that was best and priciest at the start of its season, but that doesn't exist as a breed anymore. But don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. I did some googling, just a little, and I wasn't able to really get to the bottom of it. But I think that you could substitute any item of high value that is very attractive to you for the apples of King John in that Benjamin Franklin letter. For me, it might be an exquisite pair of Italian boots. Back in episode 41, I read The Rake's Progress, William Hogarth's artistic series about a man who pays too much for his whistle and ends up in debtor's prison, Bedlam in London. So do give that episode a listen. It seems to me that being that type of person is precisely what Benjamin Franklin is advising against, in the same way that William Hogarth advised against it. But what a charming way of describing the merits of penny-pinching, to tell you not to pay too much for a whistle. Benjamin Franklin was so famous, not just as a founding father of America, well, that's plenty to be proud of right there, but the inventor of the lightning rod and bifocal lenses. He was also a productivity genius. His daily routine is still recorded and it's very well known. It starts at five in the morning with a question, what good shall I do today? And it ends with diary writing in the evening to answer that question by asking another, what good have I done today? Productivity is a very modern goal. You can see it everywhere from books like Getting Things Done or The 4-Hour Workweek to YouTube videos of My Morning Routine, My Nighttime Routine, Study With Me. Everyone these days wants to be as productive as they reasonably can. So join me next time when I explore some great writing by a giant of modern productivity who was writing nearly 2,000 years ago. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.